Amen. So the Apostle Paul, he wrote a bunch of the letters that we refer to as the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the church in an ancient city called Corinth. And he wrote some words to the Corinthian church that are just... Uh, I say this all the time. Some of the most powerful words in the New Testament. There's a lot of powerful words in the New Testament, so it's easy to overstate. But they're still good. right? But, but Paul is writing to a group of Jesus followers who are facing a lot of challenges. They're facing some internal challenges, some, some difficult conflict inside their church body. They're facing some external challenges, some political and economic and social factors that are making their lives feel difficult. They're facing personal challenges, insecurities, weaknesses, failures, a sense of inadequacy. I wonder if anybody here can relate to what the first church in Corinth felt like. And Paul was trying to encourage and guide these Jesus followers And he said some words that I I want to kind of make the bookends to the sermon this morning. They come from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And this is Paul recording some words that Jesus, he heard Jesus say to him. So the he, that first he, is Paul talking about Jesus. Here's the words of Jesus spoken to Paul that Paul wrote down in 2 Corinthians. But Jesus said to me, my grace, back to the other side, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Ooh, really? so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why, Paul? Why would you do that? Here's why. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Would you pray with me again? God... We want your word to be the foundation we stand upon in every aspect of our lives. So as I talk and and share stories and and we think about together um, your scripture, God, may your word, may your voice speaking to us, may that be the thing every one of us is focused on. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So um, my freshman, no, I don't know, uh, sometime in college, one of the years that I was in college, we could, I could guess which one, but I'd probably be lying because I don't remember. But one of the years in college, during January, most of the campus left to go study abroad. And just to give you a clue, um, here's a picture of my college campus in January. Who wouldn't want to leave a place that cold where the snow gets deeper every day? But I chose one of the years to stay on campus. I thought, this is a good idea. I'm going to stay in the dark, cold January of Minnesota with almost nobody around. That's a good idea. That's what I'm going to do. Yes. And I uh, I took a class called Philosophy and Literature. So I spent all day 
every day reading works of classic literature and then getting together and discussing them in the dark. And, you know, we could talk about a lot of implications of that, but there's one memory that stands out. One of the books I read, uh, Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment. Yeah, right. Some Dostoevsky fans. Now, let's just be honest. That is a hard book to read. The dude just goes on and on and on and on. But the main character, I remember this, the main character, Raskolnikov, still don't know how to spell it. I wrote it on the back as a note. Who knows if I spelt it right? The whole book is about his deep inner turmoil. This man who is, is tormented by questions of right, wrong, good, evil, and by questions of how he is supposed to act in the world. And, and maybe it was the cold winter that I was living in. Maybe it was the brilliant professors and, and classmates I was with. But for some reason, experiencing that book and the torment of that character gave me a love for classical literature. And I remember, it was, it was one of those moments, one of those short seasons that left an imprint in my life. I wonder if you've had experiences like that, that left an imprint. Not many years ago, a friend gave me a poem uh, by this guy, Lord Alfred Tennyson. Lord Tennyson. Uh, Alfred, is that the, I don't know if that's right. Lord Ten, Tennyson, Ten, whatever. Tennyson, that's the name that's on the poem. And he wrote a poem called Ulysses. And my buddy gave me this poem, Ulysses. If you haven't read it, go look it up. You'll find it. It's amazing. And it's a poem about an, an older man who's sort of lamenting the loss of his youth and his strength and all the adventures that he had. But as you're reading through this somewhat sad poem, there's a line in the middle. And it said, come, friends. It's not too late to seek a newer world. And I don't know why, but for whatever reason, for what, for whatever reason that, when I read that poem at that point in my life, I just said, oh, that, that line grabbed my heart. I taped the poem to the back of my office door for a number of years because I just loved it. That poem, I read it in a moment that it, it made an impact on me. I've told the story before. Um, in grad school, one of my instructors gave me a copy of the Covenant Prayer of John Wesley. It was printed on a little blue piece of paper. And the opening line of that prayer says, I am no longer my own, but thine. And because that instructor gave it to me at the right time in the right place, that prayer just, ah, oh, it made an impact, and I still have it under the glass of my desk right now, today, because that, that prayer left a mark on my life. In ninth grade confirmation, I chose a confirmation verse. And I don't know if I put that much thought into it at the time, but the choice I made then was to pick a verse that still to this day I look to. It's powerful. My mom had it printed and framed, and I still have the frame in my office. Joshua 1, verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I bet every one of us could go around and call to mind some moments, some seasons, some experiences, some times or places where for whatever reason, an impact was made in our lives. And often, art, literature, 
poetry, prayer, scripture, they make, they are part of that impact. Think for a second. When in your life, go to the next slide, when in your life has a piece of art or literature, music or writing, poetry or film, scripture or prayer, left an imprint? It, it made a mark. You can even call to mind the time and the place and the room and the smells that you smelled and the feelings you had in that moment. Not surprisingly, uh, we know that scripture and prayer make a big impact. God gave those to us for that purpose. But we also know that all sorts of other works of culture, pieces of art, pieces of writing, can make a great impact as well. And there's things like the writing of Dostoevsky that have stood the test of time. People who make their way through the work of reading that get to the end and go, wow, we can see why that's a classic and why that continues to be read. Culture makes an impact. It shares wisdom and, and, shapes, culture, and, and shapes values and beliefs of people in the culture. But we live in a world that kind of an interesting thing has happened to these great works of culture, Right? People still create art in all sorts of ways. People still produce it and read it and think about it in all sorts of ways. But whereas we look back on cultural products of older times and we sort of celebrate it in a venerable sort of way, ooh, that was amazing, what we have a lot of now is is a little bit of an adaptation of that. We have what's called popular culture, right? Or uh, maybe it would be better to say, pop culture. (laughs) It's exciting. I can market it. I can sell it. I can put it on a t-shirt and people will buy it and I can get rich. Pretty sure Dostoevsky didn't get rich. His works didn't get fame until a little while after he had passed on. But it's sort of this, it creates a little bit of attention inside of our lives because we know that art and literature and writing can be good, but sometimes we feel like the products being marketed to us might not be as positive of an influence as we'd hope were influenced. When I think about the nature of the popular culture we live in, the abundance of TV and film and YouTube and TikTok videos, the endless stream of new music coming out and new genres of music being spun off all the time. And and when I think about what we just said and sang and prayed that I want my life to be founded on God and his word, I I find myself having a little bit of an internal struggle, struggle. I find myself asking, how should I, how should we as the church, how should I engage with this culture around me? When I go to the movie, when I listen to music, when I read any sort of things that's being produced, how should I engage with What should my posture be in relationship to the popular culture? Because here's what I know. Whether or not I think pop culture is a good thing and a benefit or a terrible thing and a detriment, what I know for certain is, man, it's in the water we're swimming in. Man, is it in the air we're breathing. It is the language that our, uh, our, you know, our community speaks. I know that I have to choose, right, wrong, good, bad, I have to choose how I'm going to engage with it. And the reason I ask these questions is because here's what we're going to do this summer. We are going to start a brand new sermon series. The sermon series is called Under the Sun. Can we grab the title slide? I don't think I put it in there. Just, I don't know, somewhere. 
It'll show up somewhere. Um, uh, a sermon series called, there we go, Under the Sun. Popular culture and biblical wisdom. And here's what we're going to do during the summer. Each Sunday, kind of in alternating Sundays, we're going to take a piece of popular culture. And we're going to talk about it. And we're going to look at it. And we're going to ask questions like, what does this piece of culture, maybe a movie, maybe a book on the bestseller list, maybe a song on the top of the charts, what does this piece of culture say? What values does it display? What, what message or idea does it present? And then once we look at that piece of culture, on the alternating week, we're going to say, what does biblical wisdom say that might agree with and complement popular culture, or that might disagree with, say something different from popular culture? And here's my hope. My hope is that we're people who learn how to engage with a culture we live in. But there, there is, there's sort of a question underneath that. So, so What's my posture? Okay, we'll go back to that slide. Sorry, Sean, I'm messing up your... Oh, there we go. Look at that. Sean, you're on the ball. How should we engage with the culture? Before we get into... I'm going to talk a little bit about a movie um, this morning, but before we get into that, I I just want to... I want to talk about what's... What should I think about? You know, when when my kids ask me if they can watch a new show, uh, when my friends recommend a a new movie or book, what should be my, my default sort of... Posture. I keep using the word posture. That's a fine word. What should be my posture when I think about it? And the scripture that came to mind um, is one that actually, I bet a lot of us have heard in some form of Christian media. There's a phrase in the Christian world that, that I'm guessing you've heard of it before. It's, we should be in the world, but not of the world. Has anybody, has everybody, have you heard that phrase before? Okay, yeah, so all that, like, in the world, but not of the world. That's a, that's a phrase that gets used often to describe how we should relate to anything that's of the world, whatever, however we define that. Turns out, you, you may know this, that actually comes straight from a teaching that Jesus gave that his disciple John wrote down. You can read the whole thing in John 17. Uh, some of the verses in John 17. I don't remember. You'll find them. Um, John 17, but there's two lines that Jesus said that really stand out. That, yeah, that that we get the phrase, Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. And here's what Jesus said that we kind of get that from. He, He was talking to his disciples, and he was actually praying for his disciples. And he said, I'm saying these things to you, my disciples, while I am still in the world. And later on he says, but my disciples are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And we see it, and Jesus kind of repeats it in a few different places. Go read John 17, you'll, you'll kind of get the context. But he talks many times about what it means to be in the world, but to be in the world in the context of I'm not of the world. But I was thinking about that phrase over the last couple of weeks, and it struck me. You know, because I was going, well what, well, what does this phrase mean about my posture? And when I think about how I've heard this phrase in my life, I think it's caused me to think I should have some sort of a, maybe an adversarial posture with the world, right? Like I'm, I'm in the world, ah, oh, shoot, I mean, I wish I wasn't in the world, but I guess I'm stuck in the world, but Jesus said that I am, and I look around, I'm like, yep, I am in the world, I, I can see that, oh, well, I guess if I'm stuck in the world, I just need to make sure that I don't fall into the trap. 
I need to resist and, and guard against being of the world because, ooh, that, that'd be very bad if I was of the world. Now, that, that, might be, that might be unfair of me, but I think that's honestly how I've felt that phrase. So I read more, you know, I spent some time in John, and I said, is that what the phrase is really trying to say? And I realized, no, that's actually not what the phrase is trying to say at all. See, because Jesus' statement, my disciples are of the world, or are not of the world, any more than I'm of the world, that's not his goal in what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, that is his starting point. Jesus said, if you're a Jesus follower, if you've confessed your sins, placed your faith in Christ, received his new life, then you're not of this world by definition. There's nothing you can do to change that because God's the one who's already changed it. Worrying about whether or not I'm of the world completely misses the point. The point, it turns out, shows up at the end of this little teaching of Jesus where he says, as you sent me, as you, God, sent me, Jesus, into the world, I have sent them into the world. When we think about our posture towards popular culture, and if you're like me and you've had this feeling of maybe, maybe what I should be is fearful of and, and, and an adversary to and, and cautious about, um, if we're going to look to this scripture, uh, I think I have to say God's goal is not to caution us against the world, but rather God's goal is to get us into the world. That is where he sent us. He put us here because this is where he wants us to be. I read an author who said, so maybe we should actually change the phrase. Maybe instead of in the world but not of the world, we should follow the line of thinking that Jesus himself made and then we should say, not of the world, no, yep, but sent into it because that is exactly what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, you're already not of the world. I took care of that. So what are we going to do? I'm going to send you into it. And if that's the idea we should take, it means my posture is not adversarial. Rather, it's missional. God has sent me to a place that I should think about, study, reflect on, learn the language of, learn the music of, learn the culture of. Why? Because if I'm going to have an effective ministry in this world, I better know the world I'm ministering to. Just like when anybody moves overseas and lives overseas, one of the first things they do if they want to live a, a meaningful, full, whole life there is they learn the language. When I showed up in China and I wanted to get on a train, I just looked around like a fool. I don't know what to do. And it wasn't until I learned the language that my relationships got deeper, that my ability to interact naturally and, and meaningfully increased. So, under the sun, popular culture, biblical wisdom, over the next 10 weeks, we are going to engage with popular culture. Why? Because this is the language of the world we live in. And if we are missionally sent by Jesus into the world, we must know the language of the world we live in. And then as we do it, we're going to explore biblical wisdom and say, where does the popular culture get it right? Because anything and everything that is true belongs to God. All truth is God's truth. God is the only source of truth. And sometimes by intention or by accident, 
Popular culture gets truth right in beautiful ways. And sometimes it gets it wrong. And so let's talk about it and let's think about it. And let's start this morning with one of the newest films, not the newest, but it's still pretty new, uh, coming out of um, a little production studio you may have heard of before. Uh, Disney is the name. Have you guys, anybody familiar with Disney? Have we heard of? Um, if you're like me, back in 2021, Disney released a new uh, animated feature, which was the first Disney film ever set in Colombia. We've never had that before. They used a bunch of traditional Colombian style music as the backbone of all the songs in this Disney uh, feature. The lead character, uh, a young woman named Mirabelle, is the first Disney animated female to ever wear glasses. This is what the internet's told me. No Disney female, animated Disney female, has ever worn glasses until Mirabelle from the movie Encanto. Who's, who's, who's seen Encanto? Who's got, okay. And so I'm just sorry because the songs are probably, you're gonna be humming the songs, you're not gonna be talking about Bruno, and I'm sorry <laughs> that you're not gonna talk about Bruno, but that's not my fault. I didn't, well, maybe it is my fault. So I'm just going to take a bit, and I'm going I'm to remind us of the beginning of the movie Encanto, and I'm going to do a little bit of, of uh, film analysis, because full disclosure, I think it's an amazing film. I, I just, I loved it, and I loved it for a lot of reasons, and I'm going to tell you this morning why I loved it. So the film starts. You guys can, like, you can go back in your man, to your happy place of remembering the first time you sat down and watch the film. But the film starts and we get about three minutes of backstory. And the backstory is really important, but I don't have time to explain that backstory. So we'll just say it starts with a little backstory. And then after the backstory, it bursts into the first song. And the first song is awesome. It is accordion driven, which, come on, like, when do you get to hear an awesome song whose main instrument is the accordion? Love it. And the whole song is about Mirabelle, the main character, telling us two things. She's telling us about her family, the family Madrigal. I'm going to try with the Spanish, you know, whatever. It's not great, I'm sure, but I'm going to try. And not just about her family, her brothers, her, her sisters, and her aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews, but about all of their magical powers. And it's just this really fun, whimsical, the lyrics are brilliant because the guy who wrote the lyrics is brilliant. If you know, you know. Um, and we get introduced to the family Madrigal. And we not only get introduced to the family, but we get introduced, we get, we get brought into this magical world they live in, right? And it's always kind of fun to be transported into another world. And there's a chorus in this opening song that gets repeated a number of times and gets echoed in a bunch of ways. And here's the chorus. I would just play it, but if I play it, YouTube rips our live stream down and doesn't let us play it anymore, so I can't play it copyright stuff. Here's the chorus. It says, welcome to the family Madrigal, the home of the family Madrigal, where all the people are fantastical and magical and then Mirabelle says, I'm part of the family Madrigal. And she makes a big deal 
about the fact that she's part of this incredible family. The whole song is set as almost a conversation between her and these three little kids. And she's telling about all her relatives and all their magical gifts to the little kids. And suddenly, one of the little kids interrupts her and says, wait a minute, Mad- or Mir- Muriel, Mir- 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 whatever her name is. <laughs> Too many words. Mirabelle. Mirabelle. But what's your gift? He says. And she gives the most brilliant response. It's the last line in the whole song. She says, my family's amazing, and I'm in my family, so, well. And the first song ends with this weird tension. Like, oh, this magical world we live in. Everybody's got gifts and powers, and it's awesome, and what's your gift? I'm part of my family. Does that answer your question? So the story goes on, and turns out the family's getting ready for another kid to get their magic power that night. And everybody's working to help get the house ready and get everything ready for the big party that's going to happen. And Mirabelle's trying to do her part, but it turns out this question, Mirabelle, what's your gift? It comes back again and again until her aunt, I think, pokes her head out the door and says, oh, Mirabelle didn't get a gift. And so the whole story comes into focus right at the beginning. There's a woman, part of an amazing family, who has the most incredible gifts, and she got left out. And one of the kids says, if I was you, I'd be really sad. Well, my little friend, Mirabel says, I am not sad, because the truth is, gift or no gift, I am just as special as the rest of my family. And we all wonder to ourselves, you really believe that, Mirabelle? And she goes on trying to help get ready for the party by carrying plates and carrying baskets of stuff while her sister is literally like moving bridges and the other sister is making flowers appear out of thin air in magic ways. And we can tell that even though Mirabelle says, I'm part of the family and that's all that matters, we can tell inside she feels some sadness. And that begins the second song. And here's the opening verse of the second song. Mirabelle's talking to herself. Don't be upset or mad at all. Don't feel regret or sad at all. Hey, I'm still part of the family madrigal. And I'm fine. Totally fine. I will stand on the side as you shine. I think the whole um, movie Encanto is designed to cause you and me, the audience, to ask ourselves a question. If we see ourselves in any way in the life of Mirabelle, we have to ask ourselves this question. Where do you find yourself telling yourself, I'm fine, I'm totally fine, but deep down, you don't believe it. I mean, let's be honest. We know what this is like. We know what it's like to look at our lives and to look at the great disappointment we feel because, you know, that thing we'd hoped for and planned for and worked for, it just, it just didn't turn out the way we'd wanted. We know what it's like to feel 
jealousy to see the potential of relationship or community or friendship, but deep down we feel left out, like we're not welcomed, like we're not encouraged. We know what it's like to have dreams for our family that don't pan out the way we want, dreams for our marriages that feel like they're just getting frustrated. And what do we do? We say, oh, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. This year, everything's fine. What do you mean? No, everything's, you know, our voice gets higher and higher and higher and higher. And right after this, you know, at the very end of this opening verse, um, the the point of the story really hits home because Mirabel's like, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. And then there's a bit of a pause in the music. And she says, I'm not fine. I'm not fine. One of the things I think popular culture does particularly well is it names and expresses shared experiences. One of the reasons cultural expressions, whether it's a movie or a song, one of the reasons they become so popular is because they name something that lots of people are familiar with. Lots of people hear it and see it and listen to it and watch it and go, oh, that's right. I actually know exactly what that feels like. Turns out the rest of the movie is all about every single character in some form admitting, I'm not fine either. The sister, Louisa, super strong, I can lift anything, except I cannot lift the crushing expectations my family puts on me. Sister, Isabella, yes, I can make beautiful flowers, but I actually don't like the flowers I make. I want to make different flowers. Bruno... Right? Why? Because I'm fine. And if I talk about him, I'd have to acknowledge that I'm not fine. But I am fine, so I'm not going to talk about him. Here's, here's what Encanto says to us. It says that we live in a world filled with people where we really like to lie about how we're really doing. And, it, and I think when we see that in a movie like this, it resonates because we're all so familiar personally We're all so familiar with people around us being asked how they're doing, maybe even knowing or sensing deep down that something's wrong, and hearing people and hearing ourselves and watching the world around us go, but I'm totally fine. I think, here's what I love about the movie Encanto. It's an invitation. It's it's a permission-granting movie that basically says, hey, everybody, everybody, can we all just admit it? Like, what would it be like to just raise your hand and go, you know what? Turns out, actually, I'm not fine. And the fact that I'm not fine is okay. I can say it. I can share it. I can be okay with it. And one of the reasons I love this message so much is it reminds me of another word that I've heard spoken before. Paul wrote, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. I will boast about the fact that I'm not fine, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why? Because when I am weak, when I can admit I'm not fine, I'm not doing all right, it's harder than I imagined it would be, it's heavier than I could really ever carry, it's, it's more complicated and difficult than I'm willing to admit. When I admit I'm not fine, that's when I'm strong. Would you pray with me? God, I confess that too often I lie about how I'm doing. Maybe I don't call it a lie, maybe I don't think of it as a lie, but man, I just like to pretend and put on a show and make things seem better than they are. And maybe many of us in this room know what that's like. God, help us to um, hear this invitation from you. When we're weak, when something's hard, heavy, it hurts us, the brokenness is just so deep, when we're weak, God, give us the strength and the confidence to know first that we can come to you always with every one of our weaknesses. And second, that as a community, this can be a place where we are honest with each other about what's truly going on in our hearts. God, help us to know that whenever we're weak, right then and there, precisely in our weakness, that is when we are strong. Amen. And it turns out, um, this idea is not one that just gets spoken once by Paul or maybe mentioned here or there. It turns out this idea in our weakness is exactly where we find our strength. This is the center of our Christian faith. And we're reminded of it in our regular practice, which we do here, but we know that hundreds of millions of Christians around the world celebrate on a weekly basis when we come to the table that Jesus himself set for us. I'd like to read um, an invitation to communion um, from our covenant book of worship. I invite you, come to this sacred table. Not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and that you desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you're strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. God, as we come to the table, I pray first that we would come 
admitting that we are not fine, confessing to you that we are sinners who have sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. We've sinned against you in the things we have done that are wrong and the good and right things that we've left undone. God, we, f- we confess that we have failed to love you with our whole hearts. And we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. May we come to this table in confession. But may we also come with a confession that knows the truth and promise you've given. That if we confess our sins... You, our God, are faithful and just, and you have promised us, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what you, our Savior, have done. You promise us that you have and you do and you will forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us and purify us and wash us clean from every stain and brokenness and unrighteousness inside us. Oh, it is with that great hope that we come to your table, our Lord. Amen.